detail, but we'll be covering the fruit of the Spirit, covering joy and peace. Again, this is a a series to assist Pastor Tim. Tawan did a great job kicking us off and teaching about love and, you know, talking about the introduction and, and teaching about love, the first fruit. Tonight, we'll look at joy and peace. It's admittedly difficult sometimes finding joy and peace in what would seem to be an increasingly satanic world, and we all see this and seeing the things that are happening. Jesus said, occupy until I come. And if the church would do this, you know, we wouldn't really see as much of the things that we're seeing in the world right now if, if the church were you know, abiding in his word and standing for him more, then we wouldn't see the types of things that we're seeing. Some of the things that have been going on in the last couple of weeks, uh, seeing uh, just younger and younger school-aged children being taught really inappropriate things, and that's been happening all around the country. Uh, just third graders were being taught some some very bad things. Recently, we saw a mother wanting to give her son chemicals to turn him into a girl. Uh, we see, saw 10 innocent people getting killed traveling through Mexico, and just the the country being coming becoming increasingly socialist, and the the um, the that tends to lead to genocide, and that will increase more um, as the country turns away from the Lord. It's about to get worse. So we just see wickedness abounding, and we have to remember the promises that Jesus spoke, especially things like where he promised to be with us even till the end of the age. That, that's having a double blessing now more and more. Of course, that Jesus is with us. That's the obvious blessing But what's becoming more of a blessing is just that there is an end to the age. Praise the Lord that there's going to be an end to all this. I think as as the days become more and more wicked, we all look forward to that. So tonight we'll just be looking at three things that I'll point out. It's not a three-step solution to joy and happiness, nothing like that. It's also not an exhaustive list of verses regarding joy and happiness. That's easy to find on Blue Letter Bible. We'll just be looking at three examples, and you all know I like patterns, so we'll be looking at those just to bear in mind as we walk with the Lord daily. And the three, the three points I'd like to make, number one, to walk in humility, number two, to walk in obedience, and number three, to walk in anticipation. So hopefully this will help flesh out joy and peace in an increasingly evil world. We'll have, a, if we have time, and I think we will, I've included a little bonus section Um, I debated even including this, but uh, I hear so much entertainment-oriented stuff on the Christian radio now, and it's really kind of getting to me. I'm realizing that I have a 25-minute commute to work each day. Some of the stuff I'm hearing about is SpongeBob and and just everything in Hollywood, and the the Christian radio really is kind of wasting a lot of time, and And uh, the church, I think, is making a mistake to be like the world and following after entertainment of the world. It's uh, not not a good statement as far as the church. And it's not that, and some of the Christian songs, you know, some of them are becoming very emotionally driven and definitely not saying all of them are bad. There are a lot of good Christian songs, absolutely. Uh, But I've tried to really push myself in in studying more, more history, secular history, good biblical teaching, trying to make the most of my 25-minute commute both ways, and I, I encourage everyone to do this. I've been getting CDs from the library and just really trying to, trying to learn as much as I can. And so I might include a little underdog story here that we can learn from. It's, it's an incredible story. Um, it's an encouragement to the last day's church. So we'll look at joy and peace in these end times and get some inspiration from our, our historical study. I've been passing this on to Jackie, and it's it's really quite a story. Here's a little teaser for it, because I think we'll do fine on time. But it's a World War II story about the Cretan resistance against the, Na- the Nazis. And it's a story of a band of misfits, literally misfits and military school rejects, who managed the only kidnapping of a major general in modern history. So I think you guys will enjoy it. I can pretty much guarantee you haven't heard a story quite like this one. And actually, unless you've actually heard it, and then all guarantees are null and void. So, It starts out with a mystery note to General Muller, the chief Nazi on the island of Crete who had earned the nickname the Butcher of Crete, that his second-in-command general had been kidnapped and taken off the island. Along with the note were some English cigarettes, some English Cadbury chocolate wrappers, a British commando's beret. The, the note and the debris were left with the general's vehicle from which he was kidnapped. 
at the end of the note was a postscript saying, P.S., we're very sorry to, leave this, to have to leave this beautiful motor car behind. Turns out all of these things were props to make it look like professional British commandos had whisked away the general and were cool and collected and even a little leisurely. The trouble was, I'm sorry, trouble is, it was only several amateurs who had done the kidnapping and they were stuck on the island with the general and they were running for their lives. But before we get into that, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you. Lord, thank you for the joy and peace that you make available to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we, we thank you for the word and the examples within your word. Lord, help us learn from them and from all the history and just things that have happened, Lord, that, that we don't always appreciate or, or learn from. So we pray to do that this evening, Lord. Please open up your word to us and bless and be with us, Lord. We do pray for joy and peace specifically as so many don't have this in this world, Lord, and are dependent on drugs and alcohol and, and just so many other things, Lord, let them turn to you. We do pray ultimately for the salvation of many. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so our first point is to walk in humility. If you could please turn to 1 Samuel 22. So <clears throat> we need to remember who we are in Christ. We are children of the promise, but we have to remember we are appointed to tribulation as well. The psalmist even says we're led to the slaughter all day long. And Isaiah 53 states how the Messiah would end up being led to the slaughter as well. So we know we're not above Jesus. We've sinned. We live in a sinful world. And none of us are mighty. We can, Paul says, you know, not mighty, many mighty are called. So we can't think too highly of ourselves. And we just, we're going to encounter tribulation in this world. We can't think that we're going to be above that. So it's interesting in 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 and 2, so at the very beginning of the chapter, it states, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So... This is really a picture of the Christian believer currently. Under, with Israel, with David, we see that kind of these outcasts and outlaws following the rightly, rightful king. David had already been anointed king in 1 Samuel 16, but he hadn't yet taken the kingdom fully. So this is a picture of, of Jesus, the Messiah king. He's been anointed, but he hasn't yet fully taken the kingdom. So we see the same pattern with Joseph, Moses, Moses, David. They're all rejected at the first coming and then accepted at the second, the second coming, foreshadowing the Messiah. We see his 400 followers, how they're hunted and persecuted, but they are faithful to a, a fault. This is a picture of the faithful people of God throughout human existence. They're the faithful people that were before Abraham, and then even as the nation was, was forming, the, even the 300 servants of Abraham, the 318 servants, the servants of Abraham, they were faithful. They were part of Abraham's house. And then you see the nation forming and even the, uh, say, even the Egyptians that went with Moses, the kind of the mixed multitude. You just see that this is kind of a picture of the people even prior to Israel, but then also the faithful of Israel and now the faithful of the church as well. So... The, this picture in 1 Samuel 22 is just sort of a picture of the discontented people, the, the people that, um, that you may count them out, so to speak, just sort of people that are following the Lord, and, um, and yet they're the very faithful people, just like these were following David, no matter what happened, no matter what the circumstances were. Now, if you could turn right to 1 Chronicles 12, please. And I'll make it easy on you. Everything is just going to be turning to the right. So 1 Chronicles 12, we see a transition period here where over three chapters. And in 1 Chronicles 10, we see Saul is killed. In 1 Chronicles 11, we see David taking the kingdom. And then in 1 Chronicles 12, we see David's army has they've all gathered to make David king, and that they've grown to the thousands. 
So some of the descriptions in this chapter in First Chronicles 12 are that the, there were me, mighty men of valor, men of battle fit for war, swift as deer, they could shoot with both hands, and they had understanding of the times, and they were expert in war. Verses 22 and 23 state, For at that time they came to David day by day to help him, until it was a great army like the host of God. Now these were the numbers of the divisions that were equipped for war and came to David at Hebron to turn the kingdom over to, sorry, to turn over the kingdom of Saul to him according to the word of the Lord. And I love verse 38 as well. All the men who could keep rank came with one heart. So we see sort of these two pictures of David's army. The first was sort of that desperate, discontented rabble, but it's no longer that. Now it swelled to a great army. And this is a picture of the gathering during the Messianic reign when everyone is coming to, to be with Jesus as he, as he takes the kingdom finally. So it's a picture of the Messiah taking the kingdom to be the rightful Messiah king at the commencement of the millennial reign. And how this ties into joy and peace and the fruits of the Spirit is just seeing what's coming, knowing, knowing what the Bible says about the future. So, so we know that this is going to be happening. We know there's going to be some, some bad things happening too. This isn't to dismiss any of that, any of the things that are going to be happening or happening to believers now. But it's sort of a forward-looking picture, the joy that's set before us as well, even knowing that, that Jesus will be enthroned once and for all. That's, that is absolutely good news for us and the, the joy and peace that we can know from coming from that. But there's, there's sort of a parallel between David's early army, and that's a picture of us now just sort of being you know, persecuted for our faith to an extent, maybe not as much here, but still we are persecuted in a sense, and we're sort of the outcasts of society at times. But you see this with Moses, David, Peter, Paul, Jesus, all were persecuted. We may not be the first generation to be persecuted, as, as the verse in Samuel was 3,000 years ago, but we may be one of the last generations persecuted as, as things are getting closer to the end. So you can have joy and peace knowing this truth. This is a past event that's pointing us toward the future, too, which... What other book, you know, think about what other book can do that, can, can describe a past event like that in 1 Samuel 22, but actually be pointing to something to the future as well. So the second point is to walk in obedience. So the first is to walk in humility. The Lord will lift us up in due time. The second is to walk in obedience. If you could please turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 30. So this is Hezekiah's Passover. This is an abbreviated version. I taught on this a couple of years ago, and it's one of the best examples of blessing and joy coming through obedience. Neither Israel nor Judah had properly kept the Passover up to this point. So I'll be paraphrasing the verses some. But verse 1, Hezekiah had invited Israel and Judah to the Passover. In verse 2, the king and the leaders agreed to keep it as soon as possible. The trouble is they couldn't do it when they should have, as neither priest nor people were ready. In verse, in verse 5, Hezekiah identifies the problem and acts. It says, So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, that they should come keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, since they had not done it for a long time in, a, in the prescribed manner. Verse 8 says, Now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. I love the imperatives in this. The yield, enter, and serve. It says yes. I love the imperatives with that. You yield, you enter, you serve, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away. So in verses 10 and 11 Many people are invited, but they scoff. But then it says, some people humble themselves and they come. In verses 12 through 17, it says, so a great congregation arrived. 
I'm sorry, a great congregation arrives in verses 12 through 17, and they actually keep the Passover, but they still don't have it quite right. Many of the people are still unsanctified. But the Lord had given them singleness of heart. So he could see that they were trying, and he gives them grace. It seems like people decided at the last minute that it was the right thing to do. I might be reading into that, but but it seems like people decided, like, hey, Hezekiah's right. We should, really should go. And so they did, but they weren't properly sanctified. So Hezekiah set out to, to do it anyway and make it right, so he prays for the people. In verses 18 to 20, it says, For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulon had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his Father, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. So we see the people being obedient to what was, what was being called. And this was quite a Passover. One hadn't been done like this since, um, you know, since centuries before. So it says in verse 20 that they were healed because of obedience. And, and even though it was imperfect, grace filled in the gaps. So in verse 21, now we can look at the fruit of their obedience, the last seven verses of the chapter, and you just see joy and gladness again and again. Verse 21, it says, people kept this, the feast seven days with great gladness. And also it says, the Levites praised the Lord day by day, singing. In verse 22, it says, Hezekiah encourages and, and he's teaching the good knowledge of the Lord. And many people make confession, which is great to see. This is just quite the revival going on here. And and so there's just a lot of uh, appreciation of, of righteousness, confession. They're enjoying the teaching, the good knowledge of the Lord, and they're praising the Lord. Verse 23 says they decided to keep the feast another seven days with gladness. Verse 25, everyone rejoices. The Judah, pre, the priests and Levites, Israel, and even the sojourners traveling through there. This is what a real revival looks like. And then finally, in verses 26 and 27, So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. That is an example of the obedience when the people followed the Lord and, and followed Hezekiah, and he led them in the Passover. That's a great example of how much joy there was and how much joy and peace they had in the land. And this also is, again, foreshadowing the coronation of the king, the Messiah, when he takes the throne. So there's a neat pattern in the scripture that all the good kings, in a sense, they foreshadow the Messiah. They foreshadow Jesus. All the bad kings, they have some element of the, the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, everything uh, when you look at the kings, whether good or bad, there are specific things that they do. A lot of them really kind of foreshadow or typify Jesus. A lot of them typify the Messiah. And that's, that's true for a lot of people in the Bible. There's, um, and that's, that's true even today, people like Hitler and that kind of thing, people like that as well. So that's our second point is walking in obedience and the, the example of Hezekiah's Passover was the best example I could think of that involved that, where the people got themselves together and then there was so much joy and peace in the land. But importantly, this is a foreshadowing as well of the marriage supper of the Lamb and everything that's going to happen when Jesus comes to, to take his rightful place. Sorry. Was that me? All right. Now, if you could please turn right again to our last point, Psalm 47. <clears throat> so just a reminder, even when we see the evil taking place, we can walk in anticipation of the Lord reigning on high. 
we can have joy and peace knowing, even though we, have, we know we have to go through the bad to get to the good, so to speak. So Psalm 47 is what's called an enthronement or a coronation song. And it's sung at the enthronement or coronation of a new king. It was sung at the coronation of a new sing, a new, new king. Sorry, if you could just back up a little bit to Psalm 46, it reflects the Psalm 46 re- represents the turbulence and the uh, I'm sorry, the turbulence of the waters, which represents the nations leading up to for, Psalm 47. So it, it kind of describes our current day. In Psalm 46, it says, God is our refuge and strength in trouble. Verse 3 says, the waters are turbulent, which represents the nations and trouble, violence, everything that pertains to that. The flood represents judgment as well. Anytime you see that in scripture, that's what the sort of the nations and the waters being turbulent like that represents. However, verse 4 represents peace and righteousness. It says, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. It's interesting how you have the deep, dark night of the great tribulation, but then the Lord will utter his voice just at the break of dawn, and then the nations are destroyed then. I love the imagery there, just at the break of dawn. So It's going to be just about as bad as it could, it could look to be but then the Lord will finally step in at that point. So that's Psalm 46. And then it it even gives a little bit of a a hint of the the Messianic period as well. But it's interesting how Psalm 46 precedes Psalm 47. And now, so you, you see that. You see first the conflict and then the peace and joy. And everything we've studied so far, it's all a foreshadowing of things coming up in the future. You see David's army growing from a rabble to a mighty army. But then that's a picture of all the people that have that are going to be present, you know, those that have died and those that are, you know, all of us that are with the Lord when he finally takes his place. Hezekiah's celebration as well, that this all foreshadows periods when the king of kings will take his rightful place. And you'll be seeing these things with your own eyes. Psalms such as 47... 93, 96 through 99 are all coronation songs. Psalm 47 might be the coronation song. I'm kind of going out on a limb with that, but I think we'll all be singing that psalm. Psalm 47 seems to be one of the main coronation songs. I think we'll be singing them all, actually, but this this seems to be one that will be starting the millennial reign when the Lord takes his place. So Psalm 47... It represents the joyous acclamation of the new king and his victory over his enemies. So it goes like this. Oh, clap your hands, all you people. So notice the clapping there. Shout to God with a voice of triumph, for the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. That is great news. He will choose our inheritance for us. The excellence of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. And so we, see, we're see, we walk seeing the night is fast approaching, but then just at the break of, God, of dawn, the Lord himself will step in, he'll conquer, and he'll take his throne. I love picturing what this is going to be like in the multitude of thousands upon thousands upon millions. I don't know if anyone has ever pictured themselves there, but what it's going to be like. I think it'll be pretty neat. I think we'll actually be able to carry around a sword, which I've always wanted to. Uh, actually, I want two swords because I like Legolas and like Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. He kind of pulls them out from his back, and then you can get so much done that way. So I love it. So anyway, that's where that's where the Lord is like, focus. You won't need all that. Don't worry about all that. So also. The part about clap, when you're clapping in the sanctuary, you know, when we're clapping down here and singing to the Lord, 
it's preparation for the enthronement of the new king. And I must say, I was thinking about it. When we all get there, I'm going to be looking for Nettie. I think Nettie's going to be the, she's going to be holding the seats for a CCR just because she knows how to worship. She worships the way we would all like to worship if we thought nobody was looking at us. So, so Nettie knows how to do it. So she'll be, uh, she'll hold the seats for CCR and, and uh, she just loves the Lord. She's great to watch. So what makes me think that we'll be there to see it? Well, Psalm, I'm sorry, Isaiah 33, 17 said, you don't have to turn there if, if you don't want to, but uh, you can mark it. Isaiah 33:17 says, your eyes will see the king in his beauty. I love how it points out, your eyes will see it. So these are things that it's hard for us to imagine right now, but we'll see the host of God that's gathered. You'll see the, the joy and the feast, even greater than Hezekiah's. We'll be singing enthronement songs just like Nettie. Isaiah 33, 21 says, But there the majestic Lord will be for us, a place, a place of broad rivers and streams. So how close are we? Here are a couple of examples. If you don't mind pulling up the slide, please. So the title says, Swedes are getting implants in, the, in their hands to replace cash and credit cards. It's from the New York Post, July of 2019. So the article goes on to say over 4,000 people in Sweden have gotten this microchip. The visionaries that are putting this out, they're, saying, they're predicting millions more will take it as they go global, and that's, that's more true than they know. But people are carrying out everyday activities, buying and selling transactions. So when you let that sink in for just a minute, people are buying and selling with microchips in their hands. And this is from July, which is almost you know, four and a half, five months ago, which is that's kind of like ancient history and technology. So I'm sure they're, they're getting these things out. But people actually buying and selling. At first, when these came out, it was kind of like swiping a door so you could, you could enter into a, a government building or something like that. But now it's, it's to the point where people are actually making transactions with the microchips in their hands. So really amazing how quickly things are going. By the way, I don't think their, their uh, photographer did a great job. That doesn't make me want to get one of those chips, looking at that gentleman's reaction. I don't think it could hurt that bad, but, but you'd think they'd kind of flowered up a little bit to make you want to get one. All right, so the next thing that we'll look at, just, these are just two examples of, of kind of where we are, is a video. It's about three minutes long. You can see it yourself. But it's called the Abrahamic Family House. And what this is, is this is a house of prayer for the three faiths which come from Abraham, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. I don't know exactly what this, this is. It's an interfaith. I don't know if it's a test run for something like that to see how well we can all get along. I'm not sure. Pope Francis initiated this. He took a trip apparently to Abu Dhabi in February, something like that, and then decided he wanted to to do something like this. So we'll see a video, just, just about half of it, just so you kind of get a feel for it. So this is going to be kind of the first of its kind. But there's going to be a church, quote unquote, a synagogue, and a mosque. And all of these things, it's going to be a place where we can all just get together and get along and, and worship together. It's just interesting prophetically because there has been kind of scholarly debate about what would end up happening in Jerusalem. For example, does the Dome of the Rock, which sits on the Temple Mount, does that need to be destroyed? And I kind of had assumed so, probably, but not necessarily. Or on the flip side, the other, the other viewpoint is, could they just build onto the Dome of the Rock, and then that would be part of the, an interfaith, um, basically, worship center there. And so... Could they just add on some type of a synagogue and then some type of a Christian church as well? But just that they're looking at doing this, this is, this is Abu Dhabi again, but makes me wonder if this is sort of a test run for the big one in Jerusalem that they might try. So we're not going to watch the whole thing, we'll, and it's only three minutes long anyway, but you kind of get the idea. We'll just do about half of it. I don't think they'll be singing that there. 
All right. So pretty soothing, pretty nice. You can go there and get your microchip, I think. They need to have that instead of that guy screaming in that picture. So it's interesting. Don't know what exactly will happen with it. It's something to watch. But, but uh, just the thing, the thing with these things happening, there's so many things around us which are interesting to watch. And, and again, this is a fruit of the Spirit, joy and peace. You all know many of the basic verses regarding joy and peace. Um, so just kind of looking at the patterns in the scripture, again, these are just some things, just walking in obedience to the Lord and certainly relying on his grace, just like in Hezekiah's day, nobody, nobody's perfect. And the Lord met the people where they were as far as trying to, trying to make things right. As far as like Hezekiah's Passover, we can also walk in anticipation, just seeing these things happening and, and trying to understand the times, but we can have joy and peace even going through all that. And again, it's not to minimize anything that's happening bad in the world or anything like that. We pray for the persecuted church. We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world. We're thankful for how the Lord has blessed us and kept us from uh, undergoing the persecution as of right now. Um, I would suggest that that would be changing fairly soon, looking at the direction our country is going. So, So with that... We'll uh, just look at the, the historical section. I think you guys will enjoy the story. And I mentioned at the beginning that, that I've been really trying to push myself as far as studying history, something that when I was 16, 17 years old, I really didn't care about history much at all, history class, take it or leave it, didn't care about it. And then just over the years, building a practice and stuff like that and having children and everything, just sort of really didn't pay attention to it. I'm kind of disappointed that I hadn't, really kind of caught on to this earlier. So now I'm really trying to make the most of my time. Again, a 25-minute commute, that's nearly an hour each day. So I'm studying a lot, and I'm finding that the secular history actually is helping my biblical history. And that's kind of a key point that I want to make. I'm, I'm definitely not saying cut out your biblical studying or anything like that, or biblical history, religious history, any of that. What I am saying is the church shouldn't be hypnotized by entertainment what, the way that the world seems to be going. What Kim Kardashian says or any people like that really doesn't matter. We, we can't be preoccupied with, with this sort of thing. So, so that's all I really want to kind of point out. But this is an enjoyable story. It is definitely kind of inspirational. We can, we can take a little bit from it for us as Christians as well. And then I'll I'll just kind of talk about a few things that I'm studying in my own time as well. But uh, this, this is a story about what amateurs can do. It's definitely an underdog story, which I, I like any underdog story, except for the Patriots, actually, really. I don't watch a lot of football, but when we were up in Boston, I actually started really liking the Patriots, and I know they're not usually the underdogs now, but I actually like watching them, so, when, so Doug and I are going to be getting together and watching them. But other than, other than that, I always root for the underdog. So uh, I'm doing this kind of from memory. It was an audio CD, so please forgive me any minor details that I make, uh, any mistakes that I make regarding minor details. But this is the Cretan resistance during World War II. And there were lots of areas where there, there was resistance going on in World War II. There were pockets of resistance. I just happened to stumble across an article regarding Dutch resistance among a bunch of youths, ages 14 to 17. They were called Churchill's Club. And so what they would do in, in the Netherlands, they would go out and they would kind of cut Nazi fuel lines on their trucks. They would break headlights. They would, they would remove their seats and just sort of make lot they were just kind of mess with them and just they were very good at that doing all these things just to not let any operation go smoothly and i was thinking my children would excel at this they would they would be great <laughs> children are natural sab saboteurs i don't know if you all have found that as well but i think they actually get together and meet and find out ways that they can they can sort of disrupt us some of the conversations jack and i have had over the years with with the children you know, just like taking a shoe and hiding that. And then uh, some of the things that have happened even recently, putting a bunch of half-eaten yogurt containers underneath the couch. Uh, it's like, do you want to live with insects? I do not. 
and someone had tied my boot strings together. They couldn't even tie their own shoes, and they, they tied, <laughs> tied my boot strings together into the, all these knots. So all of these are real conversations, and uh, one funny one that I had thought of as well, several years ago, quite a few years ago, back at the other church, one of our young lads had tried to unlock our minivan with a branch from a tree, So, and I didn't have a car fob for that, so... That's, that's when I felt like he was one of these little saboteurs. He was like, it's a tree. You don't unlock locks with a branch with a tree. So anyway, so that, that's just one example. But our example here is the island of Crete. Crete was strategically important for naval operations for Hitler. The Nazis swept across Europe. Hitler needed to, to basically take Crete over quickly for Operation Barbarossa to take place. Operation Barbarossa, that's Redbeard. So that's where he wanted to sweep into Russia. It was meant to be a lightning strike into Russia during the warmer months, because if you got bogged down in Russia in the colder months, that would be, that would be devastating. And that's exactly what happened. But he had to get Crete secure first before he could sweep up into Russia. There was a saying, and again, this is where, because it was an audio CD, I can't remember what country it was, but there was a saying which was, I think it was France or Greece, something fell in 24 days. So the saying was, Crete will fall in 24 hours. So that was kind of their overconfidence. The trouble is, even though Crete is a bunch of what they thought was villagers and shepherds and sheep thieves, things like that, it wasn't well fortified. There were only a few thousand Greek sh soldiers who had fallen back to Crete, plus a few hundred to just a couple of thousand British soldiers and New Zealanders. But the Cretan people were used to living off the land. It's a mountainous area, too, so they could disappear. They were used to guerrilla warfare. And so a harbinger of how tough Crete would be to conquer was when the Nazis and the Germans did their first major assault by parachute. And then the villagers immediately started attacking with the Greek reserves. And so a number of parachuters were killed with farm equipment just from the Greek villagers rushing out when the parachuters got tangled up and things like that. They actually came out, and an old man beat a couple of them to death that couldn't escape. And so, so that was a harbinger of how tough was, Crete was going to be, although they didn't ex expect that to be the case. But the people are, were actually used to fighting off pirates on the island of Crete, and so they were used to this type of guerrilla warfare, just kind of hitting and then running, and all the villagers and, and people were just committed to this, ultimately. So, but a number of people were, were a num number of the German soldiers were killed kind of right off the bat. But they did end up occupying Crete, and they, they did take it over. Um, but Crete was actually pivotal to the entire outcome of World War II, and I had no idea about this before I read this. One German general said, just before his execution, he said, it wasn't Hitler's fault nor the fault of the troops, nor all these other factors. It wasn't any of that. It was because we couldn't take Crete. So I had no idea how pivotal it was. But evidently, the soldiers that were required to take Crete were numbered in like 70 to 80,000 soldiers, soldiers that Hitler had wanted to just send to Crete and then send right out to Russia, but it didn't end up working out that way. And so what ended up happening was Winston Churchill... He loved the idea of sort of a, an outfit of misfits, so to speak, just kind of non-regular soldiers, non-regular fighting men that couldn't really fit in with the regular army. So he actually created what was called the Dirty Trick Squad. And these were like poets and writers, scholars, people who had traveled, who could, they, kinda, they could kind of blend in, they could travel, they could be creative, they could kind of create their own sort of um, little sabotage, almost like the Dutch resistance and things like that. It was just he would let them go, and then they could kind of create their, their own, uh, create havoc basically on their own. And they actually had a uh, just sort of the example of the ultimate irregular, which was a man by the name of T.E. Lawrence. He was an Oxford student. He studied archaeology in the, in the Middle East, and this is, this is from World War I. This is T.E. Lawrence. He was quite eccentric. He wasn't a good soldier in the regular military. T.E. Lawrence described himself as a little silk-shirted man, but he came out leading an army of Arabs to take down the Ottoman Empire. 
And then it was said by the time he came out of the desert, he could leap aside a fleeing camel. He could throw burning sticks of dynamite at pursuers, blow up a train, then ride a thousand miles to blow up another. And so this, this person was none other than Lawrence of Arabia. So he went in as sort of one of these misfit people and then ended up leading the Arab army to essentially dismantle the rest of the Ottoman Empire. So even the Bedouin were amazed at his endurance. So he was kind of the role model for these other misfits that would end up going into World War II. People were, he was very fresh in their memory and still alive at the time. So they actually created a school for this in Cairo. They called it the, the firm. And so there was a training place for this where they had even some ex-police come, and they, um, these ex-police were from Shanghai, one of the worst cities in the world at the time. And, and so they trained these people in irregular warfare like this. Some of the people that I wanted to mention just, just really briefly, just to kind of, kind of flesh this out, one was John Pendlebury. He wasn't involved in this kidnapping in Crete, but he was an archaeologist who had only one eye. He apparently lost his eye when he was a young boy, so he had a glass eye. But he was an archaeologist al already on Crete, and so he was important in organizing a lot of these resistance movements against, um, against the Germans there. Hitler was so enraged at this one eye, at John Pendlebury, he said he wanted his glass eye on his desk to prove that he had died. He was so enraged at him. And eventually, uh, John Pendlebury would be killed. He was wounded in battle, and then he was taken before the firing squad and actually executed. But he gave, you know, he gave everything for this. He didn't give up any secrets or anything like that. Jean Fielding was another writer. He was not involved in the kidnapping as well, but he was involved with resistance as well. He was a, he traveled homeless across Europe. He had an encounter with a firing squad as well, but ended up escaping. And what ended up happening with him was he, uh, he was traveling with some other, uh, other resistance people, and so they had gathered together. There were three of them in a car, and so they got stopped at a Nazi checkpoint, and so he said that he had been hitchhiking, and, they, and he had never met these people before. But it turns out when the Nazis examined them, they had all cash, all of their cash had the same serial number. And so um, when the Nazis examined them, they basically caught them in that lie. So they were, all of their money was, had the same, had a, uh, the sequence of the serial number. And so that got them caught. So he was due to go before the firing squad. But a woman resistance fighter found out about it from Poland, and she came in and rescued them just before they were to be executed. So, um, so he ended up surviving, and, and he was in Europe. He, wasn't, he was in Crete originally, but then, um, but then he was in France at the time of this. And several other people, there were, there were George Sikandakis. He was someone that was known to run. Uh, he could run 50 mi miles on boiled straw, and he was important with the kidnapping. And then there was Billy Moss and then Patrick Lee Furmore. He was one of the main people to have actually uh, performed the kidnapping, Billy Moss and Patrick Lee Furmore. Patrick Lee Furmore is an interesting person. He was a military school dropout, and he traveled from the Netherlands to Turkey, just kind of talking with people. He was, he was apparently quite the charmer, but he, he had made it all the way across Europe, so he was actually perfect for working with Churchill. And he became the leader of the kidnapping, and he became one of Britain's great travel authors after the war. He just died in 2011 at age 96. So he's an interesting person, and he kind of organized the kidnapping of this German general named uh, General Kripe. And so for the night of the kidnapping, what ended up happening is you had uh, Billy Moss and Patrick Lee Fermor out and disguised as German soldiers at a checkpoint. And so imagine just for a moment that they were, that they were at a checkpoint to actually kidnap a high-ranking German general. And so just pause for that just for a moment. And what, what had me thinking about this was 
that's that's really a bold feat to do that, is to be at a checkpoint to kidnap a Nazi general who would likely be highly armed. And so how I like to apply this to myself is, you know, with us as the church and as far as being bold, you know, anything that we want to do, imagine just fast forward 2019, you're at a restaurant and you want to give a waiter a tract you know, that's not something where we're kidnapping a Nazi German, a Nazi general or anything like that. And I challenged the youth when I was telling them about the story in the ATG. I was challenging them in this as well. Uh, this is a great tract. If anyone has seen it, it's one second after. I kind of like it as far as the tract goes. It's a little beefier than, than just a paper tract. It's a little bit more than that, where it really talks about the gospel. And, and kind of why I'm bringing this up is... The, the guys that were going to kidnap a general, that would be, they knew it could, be very, could very well be a suicide mission. And so for us to, to not be fearful, but to go ahead and, and just do what the Lord had told us to do and to be bold like that. So if we're at a restaurant and we want to give a tract out, and I, I've been telling myself that, self this as well, you know, just it's not like you're kidnapping a general or anything like that. Don't be fearful of people or anything. You can, you can do it. You can hand it off. You know, it's what the Lord had commanded us to do. And, um, and so it's, it's not the quite, quite the same thing that these German soldiers had done or that, that these two British officers had done. It's Billy Moss and Patrick Lee Fermor. They're the ones that had disguised themselves as the German soldiers. And so they were able to pull off the kidnapping of the general. Again, again it's General Kripe. He was new to the area. I think the Lord just allowed all of this to happen just to prove that it could be done historically. It was, it's kind of the only modern kidnapping. But they stopped the general's car, and of course he was furious that someone would stop him. And so, but as it turns out, there weren't more motor cars with them. It was just their one motor car, so they, so they took them out, and they were able to, to uh, I think they knocked out the driver before he could pull his gun. So they captured the general. They had, his, they had his hat. And so they were able to go through 22 checkpoints right on the island of Crete. It was a Saturday night, and so the streets were bustling with the Germans and the Nazis, and they had to go through 22 checkpoints just with that hat on and drive through all of those with three Cretans. They had three Cretans assisting them and then the two British officers and then the general. <clears throat> and they were able to get through the 22 checkpoints. And they, then they had to park the car. They left that note that I read. And then they had a two-and-a-half-week trek across the island of Crete and they eventually did get him off. I honestly think the Lord did allow this to happen just to, just to kind of give us inspiration to think bold and, and um, you know, just to think bold and think outside the box a little bit. But I do think the Lord helped them. There was one night where they had been traveling and their Greek or their Crete guide had left a note for them in, the, in a cave saying, for goodness sakes, go tonight. I paraphrase that. They took the Lord's name in vain there, but it said, whatever you do, it was basically like, whatever you do, go tonight. And so they ended up doing that, but the trouble was there were just Germans all over. They were scouring the island looking for them. But as it turns out, when they got to the rendezvous point, they had misread the note, which, was, which had said, don't go tonight. They had misread it just in the bad weather. But they had gone, and they somehow managed to pass through thousands, hundreds, I don't know how many there were right in the area, but the whole island of 70,000 Germans was combing the island looking for them. And so, and somehow the Lord allowed them to slip through. And then finally, when they reached the rendezvous point, it was just a mile away from a German base. And so when they got there to the rendezvous point at the beach, they were supposed to flash a signal with Morse code. And so when they got there, they were going to do that, except remembering that there were military school dropouts, so neither one of them knew Morse code, so they were just flashing the light, just trying to get some, you know, some attention, and the Germans were very close. To, they were very close to the base, and so they heard a boat, and then they heard it basically go off into the distance. They didn't have the code, and then, so they had about a half-hour wait, and then the, and then basically another 
British officer with a couple of POWs came, and he actually knew Morse code, and then the boat had circled back around, and he got the right signal. So they actually got the, the general off. So pretty amazing story. This is from the book Natural Born Heroes. So that's the one that I had finished more recently. It's a great piece of history. I do recommend it. It's a very inspirational story. It made me think if this band of irregulars can do it, what could the people of God, who know their God, what could they do? And so it's a very enjoyable story from that. Um, and like I mentioned, I'm trying to beef up my secular history and also remain strong in biblical his history, of course. But um, what I'm studying now, for whatever reason, all the studies that I've been working on have led to the study of kind of the Turkey, the area in Turkey and the fall of the Ottoman Empire. There's something about Turkey that's interesting that ties in with the Bible. And I'm definitely new, new kind of studying this, but I hope to really study it more. All seven churches of, in Revelation are in this region, so there's something that seems to factor in with the end times. There's something that seems to factor in as this being an important area. Noah's Ark had likely landed in that area, which is Armenia, part of Turkey as well. And does anybody know what the first Christian nation was that's non-Catholic, but the first Christian nation to ever make it kind of their state religion? Anybody have any ideas? Close. From what I read, and that, that might be true, but what I read was Armenia was actually the first Christian nation to officially adopt Christianity as their, their state religion. And it's a war-torn area, and many Christians have suffered persecution there. And I'm studying the Armenian genocide where 1.5 million Armenians were killed as the Ottoman Empire collapsed. And I don't know all the dynamics behind that exactly, but the Ottoman Empire was about, about 500 years from 400 to, um, I'm sorry, from the 1400s until uh, 1923, somewhere right in there. So I don't know all the dynamics behind that, but it's, it's interesting, as Turkey has been in the news a lot, we have the incursion into northern Syria that has been happening recently, and concern about possible ethnic cleansing going on over there as well with the Kurds and the northern Syrian Christians as well. And uh, about three weeks ago, it's really been in the news a lot, especially about three weeks ago with the, the conflict that had been happening there, but I saw where the, the Al-Answar Dam, and I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but the Al-Answar Dam had been bombed, and there, were th uh, there was a, a dam on the Euphrates River that I, I don't know anything about the geography or anything like that. And then I learned that there, were, there are three dams there. But it's very interesting in, in reading about this where I think there was an attempted bombing of one of the dams or something that happened. And it's actually really hard to find news pertaining to this for whatever reason. I'm not sure. But one commentator had pointed out this is something to watch where Revelation talks about they would dry up the great river Euphrates so the armies could, could march across that. So it's a really interesting region overall and just learning about that. Um, and I think we've really got to watch this sort of thing as the information may be censored or kept from us and we may not even see things that are going on around the world, especially if we're, if we're just following the entertainment industry and, and just constantly... Um, looking at that instead of studying these things. So the, our final, my final closing point here, if you could turn to Ezekiel 44, please. This is an example of, of why I think studying the history and the Bible and, and putting all this together as, as much as we can is important. So Ezekiel 44, verses 1 to 2 state, Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter by it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore it shall be shut. So some scholars, and I want to be careful with that term, I, I kind of don't like it when anybody says, scholars believe or experts believe 
that, that sort of sounds like propaganda to me. You know, experts believe, or statisticians, or whatever. You know, scientists believe the Earth was is four billion years old, or whatever it is. I, I kind of don't even like using that term, but it's been suggested that the that Solomon Suleiman the Great fulfilled this. Suleiman was one of the greatest sultans of the Ottoman Empire, and he ruled about. Uh, 1500 to 1560, somewhere in there. And the Ottoman Empire, again, that was from 1400 to 1923. Solomon reigned as a sultan. So you have to be careful with the timeline on this. And I, I'm not 100% sure on this. It's very interesting if, if this is the case and if this is the way it reads. But, but so Ezekiel prophesied this prophecy, prophecy about 500 years before Jesus so Ezekiel prophesies it in, say, 500 B.C., and then it's believed Jesus enters Jerusalem through the East Gate. I had researched this a few years ago. I don't think the scriptures actually say he enters through the East Gate, so I'm not 100% sure, so I don't want to say something that, that I'm not 100% sure on. Geographically, it does line up where Jesus would enter through the East Gate. But Solomon seemed to understand the prophecy, Suleiman, seem to understand the prophecy that, that the Lord would enter through the gate. So bear in mind, again, he say 1500, Ezekiel prophesied this 500 BC, Jesus would come 500 years after that. So Suleiman was actually trying to block the prophecy, but in, block, in trying to block it, he actually fulfilled it. So in other words, Suleiman filled in the gate, and so thinking that he was going to block the Lord from coming through it, but he, the Lord had already come through it as Jesus. And actually, so by Solomon trying to block the prophecy from happening, he actually fulfilled the prophecy. You all can look into that um, and, and see what you think. I'm not 100% sure, so uh, I want to be careful with that. But you can actually go to Jerusalem and at the Temple Mount, you can actually stand right on that gate. And when we were there... Um, the whole trip was very enjoyable. The only place where you actually felt real spiritual tension was on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And so when you're there, everything is a fast pace. We got yelled at by some guards, and it's a really kind of fast pace where you, it's not leisurely where you can go around and enjoy it. But we did actually go to this gate, and I asked the, the pastor that was leading CCR, and, or the pastor that was leading the group of people, I asked him, so is this the gate in Ezekiel? And he said, he said it was. So, so I think there's some evidence for that. But, you know, if you, if you don't have that, the, sort of the secular history, then it could be harder to understand some of the things that the Bible says. And, and clearly the Bible is our, our, um, the main thing that no, no secular history could override the Bible or anything like that. There can't be any contradictions like that. If the Bible... Um, doesn't specify it or whatever the case may be. If they contradict one way or another, then, then of course, the Bible takes precedence over everything. A lot, of, a lot of history can be propagandized as well. So anyway, that's the story. So or that's, the, that's the message. So I hope that helps anyway. Let's go before the Lord, please. Father, we thank you and praise you for this evening, Lord, and for just a warm building to be in and uh, just where we can study your word. And I pray it was beneficial. Father, thank you for your great care that you extend toward us, that you would give us your word and your son, and that you would give us the joy and peace that we need in the last days. Father, even as we see the day approaching, Lord, we trust in you in all things. We give you great praise and thanks. We pray for Pastor Tim and Sarah and the family. Please bless and watch over them and bring them safely home as well as uh, just our whole church family, Lord. I pray for your blessing upon just our, our church family, Lord. We love you, we thank you, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.